This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Film Show. Today is Tuesday, September 19th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news, and then we'll present an interview with the authors of a new book called MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film staff writer and box office analyst, Ryan Scott. Hey, hey, everyone. How's it going? Good, Ryan. Uh, I should say at the top of the show here, I want to make our listeners aware, if you are in Los Angeles, one week from today, we are having, uh, we're hosting actually a free screening of Gareth Edwards' The Creator, which is, I think, one of our like most anticipated movies for the rest of this year. Um, it looks really great. It's got incredible early buzz so far. And I think Bill Bria, who's a, a writer for Slash Film, is going to be there and uh, is going to intro the screening and potentially do some giveaway stuff if, if Disney has some things, uh, promo items and stuff to give away. So um, there are details for how to attend this if you're in the LA area. Uh, in an article that we've written on the site, I will link to that in the show notes. So I encourage people to drop by and check that out. I think you can bring a plus one. So it sounds like a fun time. I would love to be there if I was actually still living in LA, but I'm not, so I can't. But it, those of you who are, uh, I encourage you to check that out. So I just wanted to put that right here up top, make sure everybody hears that and knows about that. Um, I'll probably mention it on Thursday's show as well. All right, yeah, Brian. And the reactions to that movie just dropped last night, like the social embargo broke, and, and I've seen some glowing stuff about it. I am very excited about that. Mm, yeah, I'm very jealous and uh, and can't wait to see it when I finally get a chance. Um, all right, let's dive into the news, Ryan. So um, tell me about what happened at the box office this past weekend. I think uh, there was a, a new movie on the, you know, that, that, that came out and was vying for the number one spot, but it ended up not taking that crown right yeah so th that that is an interesting point in of itself but we'll get to that so yes the a haunting in venice which is the third installment in uh kenneth Branagh's uh Her hercule poirot uh uh franchise the adaptations of of the agatha christie novels um so it's based on a slightly lesser known uh christie novel um but you know you go back to 2017 uh, Murder on the Orient Express, which was the first of these movies, um, uh, it did shockingly well. Um, you know, it made uh, like 360 worldwide, I think, against a $55 million budget. So, you know, that's studios will take that all day. So they quickly greenlit a sequel, which was Death on the Nile. But because of the Disney acquisition of Fox and then the Army Hammer accusations, the movie was delayed, 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 pandemic came out five years later and then it it only made 130 million worldwide against a 90 million dollar budget 
But what I always thought was weird is that Disney was like super duper quick to give a green light to Haunting in Venice, despite that box office. You guys hear me talk about box office all the time on here. $130 million worldwide against a $90 million budget. Those numbers don't add up. Like, that's mm-hmm. not... So, I've always wondered why Disney was so... like it, But anyway, so Haunting in Venice gets green light quick. Great cast, Tina Fey, Michelle Yeoh. They got the budget down to $60 million for this one. So, I think Disney was sort of hoping, like, all right, you know, we got more of a horror-first premise, maybe a little bit more of, like, a, you know, audience-friendly thing. Uh, You know, did okay, but... Um, so, uh, Haunting in Venice failed to capture the top spot. The Nun 2, last week's champion, barely beat it. So, Nun 2 dropped 55%, made $14.5 million. Haunting in Venice made just a hair shy of $14.3 million. So, there's very, very, very tight race. Only a couple hundred thousand dollars separating the two, which in box office terms is very little. Um, but the, the thing is, though, the thing I'd like to emphasize is that the that doesn't really change the narrative for either film, right? Like, like $200,000 either way. Like the only, the only difference is that had haunting in Venice come in at number one, Disney could have then marketed it as the number one movie in the country or whatever for a week. But Mm -hmm. you know, that's really the only difference. And I don't know how much that moves the needle. Uh, it must a little in advertising, but, or studios wouldn't do it. But, but anyway, uh, so, you know, this is like sort of performing like the other films where it's making more overseas. So it did 22.7 internationally. So it's at a hair shy of 37 million worldwide. But now the good thing is that Disney got the budget down to 60 million. So like, you know, you're not in that $90 million territory again. But, you know, a $37 million start for a movie with that budget. If it can somehow leg out like the other movies did, it maybe gets to you know, uh, around 140. So that's like on the edge of a decent for a movie with that budget size. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not great. It's not, ter- it's not terrible, but it's not great either. So it's kind of in this weird area where it's like, I don't know if they can sort of justify it. The only thing I can say is that given the quick green light for this movie, my only prevailing theory is that Death on the Nile did just like stupefyingly good business on like VOD and streaming. So yeah, that's what I was going to ask because you know I, I don't want to like cast aspersions because I'm an Agatha Christie fan. I have a bunch of her books. I read these books. I I really like these kinds of stories. But um, over the past several years, I think the pandemic accelerated this. We've seen that like older people have not really gone back to theaters in the same way that you know they they used to uh, in the pre-pandemic era so i was just wondering if like these movies are big vod plays and disney knows something that we don't about the success you know the the ratio or whatever like the the fact that these movies might make a ton of money or get a ton of eyeballs or be valuable in some way to the company um you know once they leave theaters and the the theatrical uh box office halls are just kind of like icing on the cake for them and and maybe that's why uh, this was happening do you think that that is like the yeah, it sounds like you think that's the only valid uh, potential read here. That that's one. The only the only other thing I had two potential reads. The other I mentioned this a little bit in the piece I wrote about it. The other thing is that I think Disney might have thought like, okay, it was very obvious. Death on the Nile kind of got a very unfair shake. The budget got away from them a little bit. Got caught up in the merger, the pandemic, the army hammer. There was like fifty different things that like mm-hmm. sort of screwed that movie up. So I think Disney looked at it and said like. Look, even with all of that, still makes 130 million. So it's like, you know, I think they looked at it and thought, okay, if we can get this budget closer to the original, a premise that makes sense, like these might still be viable movies. That one just kind of got the shaft. 
Yeah. Um, so I think they were willing to take a gamble there. But then the other part of it is sometimes what happens is these, you know, you'll have a director or cast or whatever. They'll sign, I think they're called pay or play deals or something where like basically they might like, so there might've been a deal where they, he was signed to two movies and like, mm, you know, mm-hmm. he's either getting paid for making a movie or not making the movie. So like, it could have just been, they're like, well, we got, we got the contract. And this is pure speculation, but like, you know, we got the contract, so we got to do something, you know, I, but that's yeah. the only other option that I can even fat, you know, I mean, if you just, it's got to make business sense for somebody. So those are the only two options I can imagine, but uh, yeah, you know, we'll see. I will say that Death on the Nile is one of the worst big uh, like studio movies that I've seen in quite some time. And A Haunting in Venice, if anybody out there is listening and is like kind of on the fence about it, I would say go check it out because I, I saw it and it's a lot of fun and it's um, it's much, much better than yeah. the even even the Murder on the Orient Express uh, version that Brana did. I, I think this is the best of the trilogy so far. I've heard that a lot and I actually really, but say I, I, I'll, so I liked Morty, Murder on the Orient Express a lot. And I will say, I'm not saying I like Death on the Nile as much. I, I've I've enjoyed these movies. Like I even like Death on the Nile, but this one looked great, and I'm, I just haven't had time to go check it out. But I'm dying to see it. I'm happy to hear you say that, uh, even with like how much because I know you did not like Death on the Nile. Yeah, a big part of like the story is fine, um, but it just looked like absolute trash. Like it was shot on just awful, awful green screens, and uh, just everything about it looked fake. And this is like they actually went to Venice and filmed a bunch of stuff. And a lot of it, most of the movie is like inside this big um, sort of broken down uh, old palazzo. And that is probably on a stage, but it still like looks really, really good. You know, what's um, funny whereas, is, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm so sorry. I was I just going to say, whereas, whereas death on the Nile, like looked like, you know, it was wiped through the trash and then th- run through a projector <laughs> or whatever. So, well, it's funny. It's funny you say it because like death on the Nile is way more expensive. And like, and they didn't go to those actual locations and stuff. And then like, what's interesting is that Gareth Edwards talked about this a lot too, with the creator, which we were just talking about where he actually managed to get the budget down significantly by just like going to these places, shooting a bunch of the footage on location. And then like, and it's interesting that you're seemingly saying that it seems like that's what happened with haunting in Venice as well. Now, granted you keep the locations down a little bit, whatever, but like, but it's interesting how like the, the, a lot of these movies have relied so much on, the ability to do stuff in post, you you do it later. You have all these, you know, effects people paint all mm-hmm. this stuff, whatever. And like that, that clearly makes it more expensive. Like it seems like if filmmakers could just sort of commit to a vision, you know, don't have like gun shyness about that flexibility later, you might be able to get budgets under control a little more, it seems like. Yeah, and that's also a thing that like just translates into a tactility that I think viewers appreciate. I mean, I know, I know I appreciate it when I can I can tell when somebody actually went to a place and did a thing, and I always appreciate the you know even if it's like subconscious, like I appreciate the effort that went into that, and like the idea of like, hey, I'm in a movie theater in Northeast Florida, and you're whisking me around the world, taking me to a place that maybe I've never seen before or whatever. Um, so you know that, that's like the power of movies. It's basic stuff, you know, like <laughs> don't shoot everything on a on a back lot in Atlanta or whatever in a parking lot so um yeah i I hope that uh the financials end up uh, proving to be like an incentive for people to actually get out and go shoot it in real places because that would be great to see so yeah but anyway uh, sorry that that, i know it was a little off topic but it just you know it does relate to the idea that like if you get these movies to cost less it's easier to make them (laughs) yeah 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 definitely um Um, so oppenheimer is now the the highest grossing biopic of all time it beat out uh what bohemian bohemian rhapsody rhapsody which um which i think is 
good for the history books, I would yeah. I would argue. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's it's a good idea to not have Bohemian Rhapsody at the top of any pile like that. Um, I don't really know if there's anything more to say about that. Just then, like obviously, Oppenheimer continues to uh, to go in. This well, sort just of, to like, point out that it's that it's Oppenheimer. I mean, I know we've talked a lot about. I mean, it's it's about to cross nine hundred and thirteen million dollars worldwide, and I just still, I I would still say again, this is another example of Queen biopic up against three hour movie where guys do science about making an atom bomb. Like it just, it just continues to be this thing where this just doesn't seem like the movie that's going to approach making a billion dollars. And I said this in our Slack last week there. I'm not, it's not going to do it in this original run, but if there's like a re-release for Oppenheimer before the Oscars or something, there is an outside chance of it possibly getting to a billion dollars. And I, if it if that happens, it is it got far and away the most unlikely movie to ever make a billion dollars. It's crazy yeah. that we're crazy we're even having that conversation. And and I mean, so a quick strike update. I think Wednesday is when the studios and the writers guild are going to go back to the the negotiating table. But I mean, even if a deal gets worked out very very quickly, I mean things are have have shifted monumentally and the rest of the year and into next year looks dramatically different than it would have if uh, these studios would have given the writers and actors a fair deal earlier on in this process. So what I'm saying is, you know, there's now actually a little bit more runway for something like an, Oppenheim, an Oppenheimer re-release because it's not going up against, you know, major competition in the way that it yeah. could have been in a full year. So like that seems very maybe more possible now than it would have been otherwise, you know? So. Yeah. Cause AMC's uh, CEO, Adam Aaron was even talking about that a bit where he was like, yeah, like we're a little worried about next year now because you know, the way these things work, things that would come out next year would be in production now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, like even like Beetlejuice two, I think Tim Burton was like, we were two days away. Like they had two days left to film, yeah. you know? And there, and so it's like, you know, it, I, I, you know, I don't know. So I, th- I think the other interesting thing, and I don't want to, this is way off topic, but I think like what, what you also might see for next year, keep an eye on like movies that are maybe pegged for VOD releases or mm-hmm. maybe even like festival movies that never got picked up from a while ago and that are just kind of sitting. Eh, yeah, because they need too. something. They need something. I think you're going to start seeing like, well, what do we got? You know, what's out there? What can we grab and, and, and what can we take a shot on? And so I think you're going to see maybe some VOD movies get a shot at, you know, get a shot at a theatrical release probably going to see a lot of re-releases next year is going to be weird like particularly the first half but anyway so yeah uh okay so tell me what's going on with mission impossible dead reckoning because we talked a lot about how that movie was super expensive it was shut down a bunch of times during covid um and uh you know it didn't perform I, i think it's fair to say to the level that everyone was sort of hoping and it's i guess it's still technically in theaters isn't it like uh yeah in but its, it's, initial it's really run. it's it's really at the like last gasps of its you know it's 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 run is essentially you know i mean you're, you might yeah. be able to make a few more million but it's pretty much done but okay um, so what's going on with this movie yeah so so look we've talked i and i will i will say this i've been a little hard on this movie's financial prospects mostly just because I just think people need to understand that like a $200 million movie, you have to make an ungodly fortune to, to, to make that even make sense. So it's like, I just hate that sort of thing. But I will say one thing I've been a little unfair about is a chunk of that budget did go to pay all these crew members, all these people for weeks during the shutdown. So, you know, I think Paramount is owed a little bit of credit for 
keeping people paid during this time. So mm-hmm. I will say that. But this makes this story all the better is that Paramount, every movie, every big production, you have to carry a pretty heavy amount of insurance for the production because, you know, people get hurt. People, I mean, there's been horrible stories, you know, stunned people have died on movie sets. Like you have to have tremendous insurance, especially making a big action movie. So Paramount had a lot of companies had these big insurance policies on these. uh, And then the pandemic hit productions had to shut down. People are losing money. Well, there wasn't necessarily all these like, you know, contract language didn't necessarily always have like pandemic in it. So um, anyway, there, there's a big insurance firm called Chubb that Paramount had a con- uh, uh, one of their subsidiary, uh, not a subsidiary, but one of their divisions called Federal Insurance Company. Paramount had their insurance for Mission Impossible Fallout through that company. They submitted a claim because of the COVID shutdowns, because several crew members got COVID. They had shut down all this other stuff. Well, Federal originally only paid them $5 million of that claim. So Paramount sued them. Uh, the suit was settled some time ago, but we just now learned that Federal actually paid them $71 million uh, was the settlement. So a lot of ways you can look at that. The original budget was $290 million. So you can now, the way that I would look at it is you can subtract $71 million from that $290 million figure, which Mm -hmm. brings that budget down. It's now, let me be very clear, $219 million is still a gigantic budget, but that gets you a hell of a lot closer to profitability. Mm -hmm. So just for some context, the the movie right now is at $566 million worldwide. Um, You know, probably finishes around 575, 580 against a $218 million budget. You maybe actually, depending on how the deals work out, depending on the split with theaters, you might actually approach the break-even point or, or something close to it. Then after VOD, Blu-ray, streaming, all that, the movie will probably break even. Like, you know what I mean? We're not mm-hmm. going to be in a point now where they're losing, you know, what might have been, you know, a, 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 an absolute fortune. So yeah. th- th- this is kind of, and I'm also wondering, the bigger implication here is that, is this going to come out with other movies? Like we had the Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness had like a, much bigger budget than people realized. And maybe Disney's going to get some money back from insurance. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's going to happen with the Batman. I don't know any of these movies that had COVID shutdowns. So we'll see. But uh, at least for this movie, it makes the financials look a hell of a lot better for this movie. And then ideally that improves the financials even more for part two. So, mm-hmm. you know, that it's, a, it, I think it's a very good thing for, for, uh, for, for this franchise's prospects. Yeah, it's tough to parse um, without, you know, obviously having the contracts in front of us and like going through line by line or whatever. But I know that they were they were filming moments from or scenes or whatever chunks of part two at the same time as they were filming the first movie. So I wonder if this insurance payout is just for part one or if that's for part one and part two. And they're like dividing it among the movies. So it's not quite as dramatic uh, a shift as it, as it seems, maybe it's only, you know, 35 or whatever for, for this first film. And then the rest of it gets applied to the second movie. I'm not sure exactly how all that stuff is going to work, but, uh, but yeah, in, in any case, uh, I'm glad to see that, you know, something is, is, uh, on this movie side and, and sort of helping it in the, (laughs) in the long term. And look, it's not like I'm rooting for like the big, you know, soulless movie studio here, but like, look, like as we all pay insurance for things, 
ideally, when something happens, you want that insurance. That's what the policy is for. So, like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of only fair. Um, The only other thing I will say is that, like, federal seemed to try to pull some pretty crooked stuff, like, in trying to negotiate this down. Uh, a Hollywood Reporter thing that was breaking down the the lawsuit said the insurer stated that there was no evidence that the cast and crew members members could not continue their duties despite being infected with the SARS COVID-2 and posing an undeniable risk to other individuals involved with the production. Wow. So that was what they were trying to argue. And then uh, Federal said in response to that, that the policy speaks for itself. So yeah, so that there was some... <laughs> So, you know, like, eh, you know, like that was a little rough. So it's hard to kind of root for them in that situation. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, the, the, the only other thing I'd like to mention box office wise real quick before we move on is that um, uh, Dumb Money, which is my, what maybe my most uh, anticipated movie the rest of the year. Uh, I'm seeing it tonight. Uh, uh, it was released in eight theaters over the weekend. So I did not know this. Sony is doing a bit of like a platform release with this movie. Mm-hmm. It made two hundred and twenty thousand dollars on eight th- in eight theaters, so it had a twenty seven thousand dollar per screen average, which is very, very, very good. Um, so I-, I think this is a movie that can maybe build some buzz that way, and we'll see what happens in the coming weeks. But I think that was a smart strategy for a movie like that. Excellent. Um, okay, cool. So uh, speaking of smart stra- strategies, or at least interesting ones, um, Bill Willingham is the creator of a comic series called Fables. And um, we were talking before we started recording, Ryan, that you've never actually read any Fable stuff, but you know a little bit about this world. I've read the first, I want to say it was like 12 or 15 issues or something, and really enjoyed it and just kind of fell off and never uh, never picked it up again. Um, but this this comic series started in I want to say it was like 2002, early 2000s, and it ended in uh, 2015. There were like 150 issues. And uh, the premise of this is the very basic premise is that it like they're the um, fairy tale fable creatures that you know from childhood stories are living in New York City and uh, trying to basically like blend in with human society and um, the characters like the, the big bad wolf is the sheriff of this fable town and, um, snow white is the deputy mayor. And like, it's just a really cool, um, we've probably talked about this in, in episodes of the podcast from years and years ago, because there were talks of being, you know, a fables TV show and a fables movie. And like, I think once upon a time, the Disney show, or I'm sorry, that the show that ended up being on ABC, um, is very much like this kind of thing basically ripped off. Um, but uh, anyway, Bill Bill Willingham, the, the creator of Fables, did something really extraordinary. Uh, I think this was um, last week. Uh, I think it was Thursday, right after we recorded Thursday's episode of the podcast. But he has made Fables public domain. He's basically just said, hey, I'm releasing this to the world and anybody can do with these characters whatever they want. Like you can make a fable toy. You can write a fables book. You can make a fables movie and a cartoon or anything like it is now, it now belongs to the public um, because he's had so many clashes behind the scenes with DC, which is the, the um, comic company that was publishing these comics over the years. Like there've been so many, he, he wrote this big open letter where he released this uh, property to the public domain and sort of went through a beat by beat play by play thing of like, here's why I'm doing this. Here's 
you know, what I think is going to happen. Here's what I think should happen when it comes to intellectual property and like copyright law and all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's a really interesting opening, uh, open letter. And I, I can't remember, at least in the past several years, a creator doing something this drastic, um, essentially as like an FU middle finger to the, the corporate overlords that they were in business with. Um, cause this really just kind of screws over DC who has been working on fables stuff and had, you know, a fables movie in the works and all that. Um, and there's, I think there's fables video games. So now anybody can do anything with this property, which obviously like devalues it in a huge way to DC, but that's what Willingham wanted to do. And they basically drove him to doing this. Um, so Ryan, what was your reaction to, to reading, uh, this, this, um, open letter from Bill Willingham? I mean, talk about, like, standing up for your principles. Like, because the guy pretty much just, like, I pretty much screwed himself. I I don't want to say screwed himself, but, like, that takes a lot of money possibly out of his pocket, you know, later. It does, yes. But, but, like, he's making a point. Like, he's, he's, you know, he's, I guess he's a bit of an, I think he's in his 60s, I think he said. He's, like, he's not a young man. So he's like, look, at this, I think at this point in his life, he's like, I'd rather make a principled stand here. You know, now the legality of this, I got to imagine DC is going to challenge elements of it. But I mean, as he says in the letter, once you open Pandora's box, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to shut it. But because mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest things is that they made that Fables video game and he was like, can I please get damn money for the video game you made off my thing? which is fair. And like, they never really gave him the money. And so it's like, you know, you could solve this just by being reasonable. And I think this, cause I, I love comic books. I absolutely love comic books. The thing that has been very hard for me to reckon with over the last 10 years or so is that like these people who create these characters that generate multi-million, if not billion dollar franchises are not being paid. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, so that's always been hard for me to reckon with. So it's like, you know, I want to see those people get their slice of the pie and good for him for being like, you know, screw you. Like, and I think like, it's interesting. It's an interesting experiment in public domain stuff, right? Because like, maybe you'll have another studio be like, Hey, cool. Now this technically is public domain and we would actually like to make a fables movie. Maybe they, maybe they ask him to come aboard is like, you know what I mean? Like this opens mm-hmm. up so many interesting possibility i don't know i'm be curious i'd be so fascinated to see because even you've seen popular characters like this year that have slipped into public domain like what's going on with like you know the winnie the pooh stuff i'm not saying that's like good or bad i'm saying but it's like you know once familiar stuff goes to public domain people do interesting stuff with it i'd be very curious to see what happens here yeah yeah i mean i it's like so impossible to predict i think because i haven't seen anything like this in, in quite some time, if not ever, like that, you know, the, the, um, the breadth of the storytelling that he did in those comics, there's so much source material to pull from there where people could do anything from, you know, making short films out of like one comic arc to, you know, like creating their own animated TV show or whatever. Like the, the possibilities seem really kind of endless here. And I'm, yeah, like you said, I mean, DC is probably going to try to do something in terms of challenging some of this in the courts. But like, that's basically what Willingham is saying is like, you know, let them try basically, because I am the sole owner of this and I get to do whatever I want with it. I could sell it to somebody else. I could do whatever. One of my options, even though nobody else would really expect me to do this is to just give it away to the public. And that's the option that I choose. Um, DC can still make 
Fables movies and shows and games and whatever. But now everybody else can too. So it's just sort of leveling the playing field. So um, yeah, just a real baller move from Bill Williams. So yeah, uh, I, I tell you, I tell you the thing that I'm going to be curious to see is if there's like someone like Netflix or someone else, like if they, if they have their lawyers go over this and look at like, nah, this is legit. Like, you know, we can do this. Like, yeah. I can't help but wonder if like another actual like studio or streamer might be like, well, there's a whole yeah. franchise sitting there. You yeah, know, Netflix like, was the first company that came to mind, honestly. So I, I, we'll see if they're as interested in it as I think they would be. <laughs> or <laughs> but. someone, but yeah, because you, you just can't help but wonder, like there's a lot there. And like, and again, if they're smart, they'll go to him they'll go to William and be like, why don't you come on board as either a consultant or right or whatever. And like, we'll actually pay you, you know? And like, then you get amazingly good optics, mm-hmm. you know, like on, I don't know. Like, I think that there's opportunity for like an actual, and now I'm, I'm with like you, I'm very interested in seeing maybe an independent filmmaker comes in and maybe, 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 maybe there's all these things, but like it gives so many people an interesting way in because like franchises get attention. And like, if you're now an indie filmmaker and you have a way that you're like, like Gareth Edwards with that movie Monsters, where he made it for like $500,000 and mm-hmm. you're like, you look at like, okay, we can put together a little bit of money and we have, a, we can get really creative with a way to make this big fantasy world seem real. You can maybe actually get some attention with your, I don't know. I just, I'd be so curious to see what happens here. I mean. Yeah. I mean, that like you bring up a great point because I, I want to say for a majority of the time that I was reading Slash Film before I started writing there in 2017, one of the big things that I was seeing a lot was short films and like, um, you know, little, uh, basically like calling card projects from up and coming people. And that kind of thing has dropped off drastically in, in the IP era. But now that a huge piece of IP has come into the public domain, I could definitely see some enterprising filmmaker using this as a as a launch point for their career of saying like okay exactly what you said you know everybody knows what fables is or, or if not everybody at least it has some recognition or whatever here's a way that i can make something to put my name out there and you know make a, a short film or whatever that like could get circulation on the in the movie blog circle you know just like they used to when dan trachtenberg made his his portal short film for example or like there, there are any number of um those types of projects that like went on to help somebody build a career. Um, David F. Sandberg, right. With, uh, with lights out being a a short film that was then adapted into a a feature. So there's so many possibilities and yeah, I'm very, very curious to see what happens. So, um, that would be a a real cool thing. If if you're a, um, an enterprising young filmmaker listening to this and you're looking to make your mark, um, maybe take a shot with fables because uh, it'll probably get a, a decent amount of, of attention. So, you know, one other thing I'd, I think that might be worth pointing out is, and I don't know if this is where, this is where I think DC would really start like stepping in. Is that like with like public domain books, anyone can print those up and publish them, you know, like, so sometimes what'll happen is you'll see like when a movie comes out based on a public domain thing, you'll see like a bunch of like uh, publishers will try to like, put out their own version of the book with like a nice cover to try mm-hmm. to like make some money off a public domain thing, which you can do. Yep. So I'd be curious, like once the legality of this is really sorted out, are other publishers going to be like, Hey, we're going to put out this nice edition of fables because we can. <laughs> and like, yeah, I wonder it. if like the actual art, um, you know, the physical pages, the, the actual images are still under copyright at, at DC or something like, 
because he, he's basically releasing the characters in the world. Yeah, I think that's what's going public. on. Again, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure either, honestly. Yeah. So, yeah, interesting stuff. Okay, cool. Well, I think that's going to bring us to the end of this this first part of the show. Uh, Ryan, thank you, as usual, for joining me on a, on a nice Tuesday here. Happy to do it. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Obviously on this podcast over the past several years, we started this in 2017, we've been talking a lot about Marvel Studios, we've been talking about the casting announcements and the, you know, tracking the entire um, late stages of the company's history on SlashFilm.com, the actual website, which has been around since 2005, before the Marvel Cinematic Universe even started, we have tracked the big picture of what's been going on with Marvel Studios. I mean, you can go back into our archives and read tons of stuff, speculation, rumors. I mean, all, all of the the sort of fun stuff about the early days of Marvel Studios. But there's a new book that is coming out, uh, I believe, on October 10th called MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios that was written by Joanna Robinson, Dave Gonzalez, and Gavin Edwards. And I read this book. I got an early copy of it. It is great. It is like, I mean, even as somebody who's written a ton of stories about what's been going on at Marvel Studios, um, seeing the entire history of basically this company and, and how they were able to, uh, in the face of incredible odds, set a template that the rest of Hollywood would spend billions of dollars trying to emulate is really incredible. And um, there are some great stories in this book, several of which I had never heard before. I mean, we pay pretty close attention to this stuff at Slash Film, as you know. But uh, but yeah, the, the reporting in this book, the interviews, they interviewed like over 100 people for this. And um, it is like a, a one-stop shop for everything you could possibly want to know about Marvel Studios. Um, I should also mention that that uh, Marvel put out their own book, uh, like their own sort of authorized history of, of the company in 2021. But this is unauthorized and actually goes behind the scenes and has some stories in there that the folks at Marvel... Uh, probably aren't thrilled about. So uh, I had the great pleasure of speaking with Joanna Robinson and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Edwards about their work on this book. And I just thought it was a really cool opportunity to sort of put this book in front of the listeners of the show. So I'm going to share, I don't know, the first half or so of our conversation. And then um, the actual full interview has already been published on Slashfilm. I will put a link to it in the show notes so you can just read the rest of the conversation there. But hopefully this will serve as a little bit of a tease to convince you to go read the rest of that article, because I think our full conversation is really uh, worthwhile. And um, we get into some stuff about Victoria Alonso's exit from the company, which we talked about on the show when it happened. And then also like they uh, basically lay out what they think needs to happen behind the scenes at Marvel Studios to 
put the company back on track because as everyone knows, Marvel has taken some some pretty big hits over the past few years. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll keep all of that stuff limited to the article itself and, and in hopes of driving everyone there to uh, read that conversation. But now in the meantime, here is the first part of the conversation with Joanna, Dave, and Gavin. So first of all, this is a thrill for me to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, Dave and Joanna in particular, I've been listening to you guys podcast for what feels like 10 plus years at this point. So um, this, is, this is great. I love hearing your voices talking directly to me instead of me just imagining that you're talking to me. So um, uh, in the opening pages of this book, you guys talk about how Disney initially seemed cool with you all writing the book. And then you heard that people were being asked not to speak with you about it. So I'm wondering, like, Dave, can you talk me through your reaction to that? Uh, yeah, I, Joanna and I, when we started this project around, uh, around the end game release, uh, were very bullish by what we were hearing back from Disney, uh, itself and some people inside of Marvel, uh, that there was, you know, a possibility to get everyone. And I think if we didn't feel like that was possible, we would have approached the project in a different way, but we decided to go off, do that. And, uh, luckily being it was 2019, or I guess, unluckily, uh, the pandemic hit uh, fairly soon. And a lot of people who were on different production schedules and maybe were difficult to get a hold of uh, started opening up to talk to Joanna. So we got a whole bunch of influx with that. And it was great until uh, we were talking to somebody in the viz dev department. And a couple of hours after that interview finished, uh, someone from Marvel reached out and asked if we could uh, strike that interview. And we were like, well, it's been logged. So unfortunately, no. And that was sort of the beginning of uh, us starting to get some responses uh, from people that was like, we'd love to talk to you. But and that's sort of when the doors sort of began to shut on us and we uh, felt it. And it wasn't so much like Marvel or Disney ever reached out and said, you know, please stop doing this. Uh, but it was what were a whole bunch of open doors, either because somebody way high up the ladder realized what was going on, or because I think there's a possibility they restarted their own making of book during the pandemic, uh, that the combination of those things meant that it wasn't beneficial for them to have a competing narrative out there at that time. Uh, the process of writing this book ended up taking the entire production run of their uh, very nice uh, coffee table book that tells the, a similar story. And I think we were able to um, tell a, a more realistic and wide scoped version of that story ultimately uh, because uh, we just tried to get the actual story from everybody rather than uh, basing a lot of our reporting off of the official line that we would have gotten from people uh, really early on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm wondering for all of you guys, like, what were the biggest revelations that you learned when putting this book together? Because I know that you've been, you know, paying close attention to this stuff for the, for a long time. So I guess, were there any big revelations? Um, Gavin, let's start with you. The thing that always fascinated me as I was working on the book was just uh, the story of uh, Marvel Studios in China. I had not realized that, like, you know, they, among other things, had perfect timing that, you know, sort of like just as the Chinese market opened up to Western movies, that's as the MCU launches. And it's, it was in the sweet spot of, it was foreign and exotic, but not so unfamiliar that like people couldn't understand it. And then they had this huge advantage over say, Star Wars comes in, the legacy movies are decades before you haven't necessarily seen them in China, but you see the whole thing roll out. 
and then seeing uh, learning, you know, like what a huge part of the box office it was uh, globally for Marvel, and then you know, sort of like the where they get to like loggerheads and uh, the extent to which like Marvel really had to like abase itself in efforts to like get back into China when China locked them out. So that was a story that I think. I, like many people, had heard little pieces of, uh, but then, you know, sort of like realizing when you put it all together, it tells uh, sort of the story of this, like a growth uh, that like mirrors the overall story we're telling. That was fascinating for me. Yeah. Joanna, what about you? I think it comes down to a lot of, as you say, like we knew a lot of the broader beats of the story, but it comes down to you know, the hundreds of interviews that we did around this book and the little stories that we got that fleshed out those bigger story beats into understanding why things turned left and right the way they did on this path by like the story of the very interesting personalities that were involved in every step along the way. And I think one of the, one of the biggest, uh, you know, wow stories for me was just how improbable it is that iron man the first iron man like came together at all slash was a hit all of the people we talked to on that movie described the incredible amount of chaos and just sort of indie movie fly by night approach to this movie that at the end of the day you know stands as one of the most important and impressive blockbusters of all time but when you dig into how it was made it's it's a it's a miracle and then also a lot of the business stuff in the early days i wasn't as familiar with and being able to talk to all the people who were there again these are these are near impossible deals that were made uh in in strange locations that involve running through the streets or lunch at mar-a-lago or whatever the case may be and all of that just seems uh when you put it all together and again we we think that the the coffee table book that Dizzy put out of their own story is is a beautiful thing for fans to have. There's so much more to the story that they are either not interested in or not willing to tell that I feel like we capture in our book. And I think it just um, it adds more excitement and depth to a story that a lot of people might think they're very familiar with. Yeah, the stuff about like the businessmen running through the streets was just like <laughs> such a uh, a fantastic image to have in your head thinking about the stuff. Um, Dave, did you have a, a revelation that you discovered? Uh, mostly that I, I've been covering the MCU since its inception as like geek press and, uh, on the internet and fan first. And so I had a really, uh, rigid idea going into this project about what I thought it was going to be and just how much I was focusing on the wrong thing. Everything that Joanna outlined was incredibly interesting and that's why it became like the story. But as a, you know, geek journalist going into the first thing i'm like oh i wonder if this rumor i heard was true i wonder if this rumor i heard was true what i found out is the way marvel creative works they were all part of some sort of meeting at some point you know like every sort of quote-unquote leak that we got had some sort of basis uh in reality but that's actually the least interesting thing because marvel has such a rich history from comics and then a whole bunch of really smart movie people at the top of it that like the small thing like you know was Mephisto ever in WandaVision actually was less interesting than how WandaVision went to become the debut on Disney Plus and that entire story as we're now seeing that industry collapse, uh, how Marvel sort of uh, jumped on it and uh, had some early successes that led into, I think, just a 
glut of maybe too much product. So I I really went through my own personal journey uh, with the studio and the media that it puts out. Uh, because when it started, I was just happy to see some like geek comic book properties brought to screen and being appreciated for what they were. And now I'm uh, even more in awe of how they could take what could be uh, pieces that don't fit in the same puzzle and yet weave it into a gigantic tapestry. Um, Joanna, I know that you've interviewed Kevin Feige a handful of times over the years, including for a, a Vanity Fair cover story that you worked on. I'm wondering if you had a chance to speak with him again, specifically for this book. Nothing specifically for this book. The The chat that I got to have with him for the VF cover story was really helpful because only like a tiny fraction of that made it into the cover story. And I got to spend multiple hours with him in his office. You know what I mean? So there was just like a lot of untapped potential there. And then I did talk to him for, you know, when I was covering WandaVision or whatever, I was writing the book simultaneously. So I was able to ask him some questions in other interviews that I had with him that, you know, pertain to what I wanted to cover in the book as well. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, I've never written a book, but I've put together a handful of oral histories, including one about the final battle in Avengers Endgame that you guys cited in your book, which was really cool for me to see. Um, but but the reason... That was amazing. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, the reason I bring that up is because sometimes when you're putting something like that together, there tends to be a story or two that's just like really good, but it just doesn't fit anywhere in the narrative that you're trying to tell. So I'm wondering if that happened to you guys here. You spoke with so many people. I was curious if there were any like interesting stories to you that just didn't quite fit the narrative that you were trying to tell with this book? Really early on in the process, I was like, can we have a mid credit scene? Can we have a chapter in the middle of the notes? And uh, we successfully did that with one of those stories that you're talking about, where we just heard it and we're like, I would love for more people to know about this. And uh, but there w- wasn't really a good place to put it without it sort of uh, seeming like a left turn from the subjects we were focusing on. So we do we get to have a mid credit scene, which uh, I appreciate thematically. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I won't spoil that here. I'll leave that for the readers to discover. That's great. <laughs> uh, but yeah, speaking about like the end of the book, actually, the one thing I was really blown away by was that the notes section at the end contains just a an absolute mountain of citations. There has been so much writing about Marvel Studios over the past 15 years, and it must have just been a gargantuan effort to like comb through all of the potential sources for the chapters that you guys were working on, let alone to actually drill down on the actual quotes that you needed. So what was the process like for the three of you of, of going through that? How did you divide that workload up? Um, so this is where, I mean, Dave and I talked about the beginning of this project, but the project doesn't really come together until we bring Gavin on. So I just want to like make sure um, as we have been everywhere, we like sing Gavin's praises on this project because the way that it all, I would say in in most basic terms, the way it breaks down is that I did all the interviews, Dave did a lion's share of the research, and Gavin made everything actually effing work, which it wasn't before he made it, he gave us flow. Gavin also did a lot of research. You know, I did some research, blah, blah, blah. But I would say the person combing through the archives for the most part is Dave Gonzalez, um, impressively, and also sort of captaining the notes section. But in terms of plucking out what feels essential to telling the story and what feels the most fun in the way to tell the story. I think that's a, that's a Gavin special. Absolutely. But I will say that, you know, sort of as I was working on the manuscript, you know, sort of like 
it was like Dave was my gigantic like hard disk of knowledge uh, and that I could sort of like at any point email and say, hey, we have a passing reference to James Cameron almost like directing a Spider-Man movie. What's the story there? And he'd say, oh, well, let me tell you. And I would get, you know, sort of like a huge info dump. And then I would sort of like try to boil that down into whatever like sort of like the pithy entertaining version of it was but just like constantly marveled at you know sort of like within minutes or hours dave would always get back to me with this just like deep deep knowledge absolutely i really felt like i needed to prove myself so like i think our first one is uh we were trying to figure out all we could about this uh conversation that had happened after the italian premiere of the avengers so i was like well the hotel was here and the premiere was here. And so this restaurant was here because he has a picture of Scarlett Johansson with the owner and she's wearing the same dress. So I I overshot and then was able to reel myself back once we were able to decide what was actually interesting once we got to see some of Gavin's work on it. Because, yeah, a lot of my documents are just nonsense facts lists uh, for, for a lot of this. All right, that's going to do it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Ryan Scott for joining me for the first half. And you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. The Slash Film Show is published two times a week, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at SlashFilm.com. Also, leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you later on.